So I love Christmas. I love the Christmas season. I love the lights. I love the decorations. I love the snow when it comes. Around here, we don't get a whole lot, but I'm glad it's here this morning. Right when I get to say I love snow. That was pleasant timing. Um, I love time with family, and I also love Advent calendars. This, this was one of my favorite memories growing up. I don't know uh, who of you went through Advent calendars when you guys were kids. Let me, let me, give you a show, let me see a show of hands. Who, who knows what this is? Okay. I will tell you what it is for those of you who didn't have your hands up. This is an Advent calendar. It's got uh, 25 or 24, I can't remember, little boxes. Every morning as a kid, we'd get up, we'd be so excited, we'd pop open the box for that day, and inside is a little piece of chocolate. We'd get to eat that before we went to school. I love doing this. It, I mean, it was cheap chocolate, but it was good as a kid. You just cared that it was sweet and chocolatey. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of different Advent calendars out there. I don't know if you knew this, but you can get beef jerky Advent calendars. <laughs> you can get cheese Advent calendars, wine Advent calendars. And the, my favorite one that I found was an Advent calendar for beard lovers. Beard lovers. Show them the picture. 24 days of beard treats. What this is. It's 24 little bottles of beard oil, and so you can every day decide what you want your beard to smell like. So frankincense (laughs) or peppermint or whatever. (laughs) I don't, this is a real thing. I took a screenshot of my computer so you would know I'm not making this up. You can go to Etsy.com and buy that for $39.56. 56? That's an interesting price point there. So anyway, someone buy that for me, please. (laughs) So, yes, I love Advent calendars. Uh, A few things I don't like so much about the Christmas season is that it's cold. And yes, I know you can't have snow, even though I love snow without the cold. But if you have cold and there's no snow, what's the point? So I don't really like the cold. Um, I don't like that it gets so dark so fast. 4.30 or 5, it's already dark. The day's over, I feel like. It's kind of kind of sad. Um, And it's just a long time to wait to get to Christmas all month long. I mean, actually, nowadays they start putting Christmas stuff stuff after Halloween. So they're just making it harder um, to get to Christmas. And as a kid, it was even harder, even harder than it is for me now. And I remember there was this one time when I was home alone. I came home from school. My parents aren't home yet. And I'm staring at that Christmas tree and all the presents underneath it. And one of those, there's a big one, and it's got my name on it. And I'm looking at it and thinking, I probably should, I probably should figure out what that is. <laughs> so I sneak over there because that's what you do when you're home alone. You sneak anyway. <laughs> and I get the box, and I carefully undo the first flap, and then I undo the second flap, and I get down inside. Oh, and I am so excited. I got what I asked for. I got the new Batmobile. It shot stuff. Like, hit the button, hit the bad guy. I was excited. And I lived off that excitement for days. I told the friends, my friend, the friends, I told the friends at school that I had um, about it. I was just so excited. And then it kind of wore off. And then Christmas came. And then there was this awkward moment where I had to, I had to pretend excitement and I had to pretend surprise and I had to pretend all this stuff and it was, it was lame. It was not good anymore. 
And well, of course, Batman is still awesome, and Batman, and and I had plenty of fun. I still love my Batmobile, but every time I had it, you know, I thought about that, and it it kind of ruined it. And you know, we we all have this in our human nature. We don't like to wait. And an advent calendar is a more appropriate way than you know sneaking in your packages. You get a little treat every day that kind of ties you over to get to Christmas. But uh, at this point in the Bible, they're in a place of waiting. And um, it's, it's a lot better to understand what's going on in this chapter 9, in this prophecy, if we can understand the context of, of what's going on here. So let's talk about that for a little bit. First of all, the nation of Israel has had a little schism, has had a fight, and they've split into two kingdoms. We have the, Judah, the kingdom of Judah at the south, and we have the kingdom of Israel at the north. Uh, the king of Judah is King Ahaz, and, and he is not happy. Because Israel to the north has paired up with one of their enemies, Syria. And those two armies together are about to invade Judah. And he doesn't know what to do. So he gets the idea, I am going to hire another enemy, Assyria. And Assyria is going to come in and back us up. I mean, what can go wrong? What can go wrong? God doesn't want him to do this. So we're going to back up. We're going to look real quick at chapter 7. Verse 4, God does not like this. He sends Isaiah to King Ahaz. And he says, And he said to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. So he's telling them, Don't be afraid. These, these sticks that have been pulled out of the fire, they're barely on fire. They're, I'll, I'll take care of things. Don't worry. But, but Ahaz, he's not really interested in a salvation from God. He wants a salvation that is more tangible. He wants something with power, with mass, something that, I don't know, looks like a massive army, like maybe the Assyrians. Let's go with that. Let's go with the Assyrians. So, uh, but, but God even gives him an offer of proof. In 7, verse 11, he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Basically, ask whatever you want. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's, he's kind of playing this religious game like, I have the faith. I don't, I don't need to do that. But really, Isaiah looks right through his fake religiosity and says, and said to him, uh, this is verse 13, and, and he said, Here then, O house of David, just a fancy way to say king, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He saw right through his little fake religious game. Like, I've got too much faith. I'm not going to test God. He knew that he wasn't interested in what God had to say and the salvation that God had to offer uh, so he's going to go with the Assyrian plan anyway. Ahaz says, Assyria plan is better. So Isaiah comes one more time and says, well, I need to warn you what's going to happen. So let's go to chapter 8, verse 6. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. 
<clears throat> That's a reference to the Euphrates River. Um, so real quick, the waters of Shiloh. This was a stream that flowed out of, the, out of Mount Zion, and it gave the water to supply to the majority of Jerusalem. It was a nice, calm, steady, gentle stream that was symbolic of God's provision, of God's salvation. Instead of that nice, gentle way of doing it, the people wanted power. They wanted a river. And that's where, uh, that's where the reference to the um, Euphrates comes from, is because that's where Assyria is. So let's keep going. I lost my place. Can I have some hold music while I'm looking? <laughs> Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. You're about to drown. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what God is saying is, Assyria will come and help. And then they're going to turn on you. And then they're going to drown you. They're going to overtake the land. So we have, we have a double army that's about to invade. We have the king of Judah trying to recruit another enemy. We have that enemy that's going to be coming and turning on the people. So the people don't like to hear any of this. They don't want to hear this. They want to hear, we're going to be saved. We're going to be okay. Isaiah is not saying this at all. So they turn on him. They turn on his disciples. They call him a conspirator. So in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 12, we can see that where he is, Isaiah is talking to his disciples. And he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The nation sees that they need help and they try to get it from Assyria. Isaiah is saying, no, trust God. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. Israel was supposed to be a nation that put themselves under God, that had God at the, as their primary leadership. And that's all Isaiah is saying here. He's saying, turn back to God, focus on God, follow God. And they're saying, no, you're conspiring against us. All you want is our destruction. But it gets worse. Let's keep going. Chapter 8, verse 19. The people turn away from God. They turn away from his prophets. And in verse 19 we read, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, or those who speak to the dead, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? The Jewish reader, when he gets to this point, is not going to just keep reading past that. The Jewish reader is going to see at least two things here. First, they're going to see that when the, these people have turned to the mediums and to the necromancers, they're utterly rejecting God's commands. God forbid the use of, of witchcraft. He forbid the use of mediums. And so to see this, so, that, so that's the first thing. They've, they've utterly rejected God's commands. Second, they're going to think back to King Saul 
at the end of King Saul's spiritual life, when he had gotten to the end of his relationship with God, total, totally against God, he went to a medium. Instead of going to a prophet of God to find God's will, he went to a medium and he died the next day. And so when the Jewish readers get here, they're going to think, Judah's done. Judah's done. This is the end. So there is a lot of doom and gloom going on in the context. An invasion of a double army. Judah selling out to another enemy. Isaiah predicting they're overrun by that, that third enemy. I'm sorry, second enemy. Judah being rejected and threatened. Judah rejecting and threatening Isaiah. Judah turning to the evils of necromancy. It just... It's full of discouragement, both Judah and Isaiah, full of discouragement, frustrated at the ends of their ropes. And so I wonder if you guys can relate in any way to what's going on. How much rope do you have left? Have you ever been to the end of your rope? Are you struggling with your job? Is your family going through major trouble? Do you have enemies around you? Are the things out of your control? Are the holidays a struggle for you? Are you trying to find quick fixes when God isn't working in your life like you want him to? Are you trying to find some other solution to make the stuff happen that you want to happen? We often look for quick fixes to find happiness and contentment in ourselves. So we see I'm lacking There's something wrong with me. So what do I need for happiness, for contentment? And we often look for these quick fixes within the phrase, if I could just. If I could just make more money. If I could just get that new title or new job. If I could just meet that special someone. If I could just accomplish my goals. If I could just change my spouse. If I could just change my kids then I would be happy. The world would be better. I would have contentment. I would feel complete. Or maybe it's not me that needs fixing. Maybe it's not you that needs fixing. Maybe it's the world. Maybe it's the broken world around me. What quick fixes are we looking for to fix the world around us? Is it politics? If only my candidate would get voted in, the world would be a better place. Or social justice. If only we could get everyone to stop hating each other, the world would be so much better place. Or education. If only we could educate everybody. We just need to know more stuff. If we could just educate everybody, the world would be so much better. And these things are good. God will use people to accomplish these things. But are you pursuing them for God? Or are you pursuing them for humanistic goals? Just to make the world a better place. Is seeking these goals the solution? Or is seeking God the solution? Just like Judah, our own works are short-lived. Just like Judah, our efforts are broken. And just like Judah, we need to wait on the Lord. So just... This is where Judah was, trying to fix their circumstances and failures by their own power, their own plan, not willing to wait on the Lord to do his work 
to make his salvation happen. So with that context in mind, let's get back into chapter 9. Isaiah chapter chapter 9. As we read this, I want you to pay attention to the tense that it's written in. It's written in past tense. Even though it's a prophecy for 700 years from now, it's written in past tense. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are two tribes of Israel. They live up in the the north part of the country. So this is just saying the northern part. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, which was just a, a highway through that area. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, um, a spoiler alert. If you guys didn't know, this prophecy is about Jesus. And Jesus is that light. Jesus is the light that came to to the Galilee of nations. And on the other side of that, The darkness that this is talking about, the land of deep darkness, that's a reference to a land without God. These people didn't have God. These people weren't pursuing God. Let's keep going. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So Judah is about to be overrun by two maybe three enemies. And so what this is saying is it's going to completely reverse. You feel like you're going to be uh, dominated now. You will have ultimate victory in the end. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The day of Midian. Anybody know what that is? I do. Do you want me to tell you? (laughs) So I've never... I've never thought about this day of Midian. This is a reference to a battle. And I've never thought about this battle in reference to the coming Messiah. Um, This is a reference to a battle that is amazing, that is shocking, that is surprising, that is so fantastic that Isaiah brings it into parallel here. This is a reference to Gideon, to Gideon when he fought the Midianites. So if you don't remember, what happened was the Gideon the Gideon, the Midianites were coming to attack Israel and Gideon was in charge of getting the armies together and going and fighting. But God kept cutting their army, the army shorter and shorter and shorter until he only had 300 people left. And then when they went to fight, the only thing they were allowed to take with them were flashlights and tubas. Just kidding. That was the VeggieTales version. I don't know if you want to... Just kidding. uh, What they took with them were torches, clay pots, and trumpets or uh, shofars. Um, Trumpets made out of animal horns. So what they did is in the middle of the night, before Midian was about to attack, they surrounded them with just 300 people. Everyone's sleeping. The enemy's sleeping. They bust all the pots. They bring out the torches. They're screaming. They're shouting. They're blowing their trumpets. And they scare the enemy to death. The enemy rises up retreats and destroys itself as they're running. And so it's, it's just absolutely amazing to think about 
this parallel of this army that uh, this enemy that was coming in had the full capability of destroying Israel and God took care of it. Gideon's victory came to Israel that day totally by God's hand. They didn't have to fight at all. And that's exactly what Isaiah is telling Judah here. That's exactly what Isaiah is telling us. That's exactly what Isaiah is telling you. Victory will come because God has already made it happen. Victory will come without us having to fight for it, without us having to make a way, and without us having to make it happen in our own power. But what did Gideon have to do? He had to trust. What did the 300 people with Gideon have to do? They had to trust the Lord. And what were all the other people who didn't trust the Lord told to do? They were told to go home. So let's keep going. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. So all the stuff needed for war won't be needed anymore. It'll be good for fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders? A baby? God, where is this sky-opening angel army lightning and fire destroy the enemy solution I want to see? That's what King Ahaz wanted. That's why he went to the Assyrians. That's why he wasn't interested in what God's salvation was. Because God doesn't do things the way we want them done. So often they look like a baby. They look like a gentle flowing stream. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That last sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This will not be our, our restoration, our healing, our salvation will not be by something we have done or something we are going to do, but because of what Jesus has already done and is doing. So God is sending his son. This is, we're putting our mind here, future, uh, looking forward. God is sending his son. God is sending the perfect king to rule the hearts of man, to bring us everlasting peace, to reconcile the world to himself. And he does this. Did you guys know he did it? Let's turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Father is just a word uh, for ancestor here. And, we, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus came just as prophesied. The perfect king, just, uh, just as prophesied, 
came as a baby in the manger 700 years later. And this prophecy in Isaiah 9 is written in past tense because it was a done deal. It was for sure. It was not one of these things where Judah, if you do this, then God will do this. If you follow the rules, God will bless you. Not at all. It was a, I want you to live as if this has already happened. Because it is that much of a done deal. Despite doom and gloom, God brings his message of love, hope, and redemption. And Judah just has to wait. They have to be patient. They have to trust God. And so now we are in a similar place of waiting. We are broken. Our world is broken. But Jesus has promised to come back and make all things new. Jesus has promised he will come back and finish the work he started in us and in the world around us. Now, are we willing to wait? Are we willing to do it his way? Or are we going to try to find quick fixes to make it happen now? Whether that's changing ourselves or changing the world around us. Are we willing to trust God's words are true and to trust that his work completes us, restores us, heals us? Or are we going to lose patience and look for quick fixes that we devise, relying on our own ability and brains and effort to make our lives better? So God does ask us to wait. He does. But it's not a passive waiting. It's not a go grab a chair and lemonade and sit there. Jesus tells parable after parable of farmers, of bridesmaids, of servants who, who are waiting, who are waiting for their master to return, who are waiting for the groom to arrive. And they're not told to just sit. They're given jobs. They're given resources. They're given the opportunity to grow his kingdom. And that's the same charge God gives us. So as we wait, let us be ever focused on our Lord, ready for his return, growing his kingdom as best that we can, and believing that his word is true and that it is his work that will complete us, not our own quick fixes. So um, you guys remember my package, I was, my, my gift that I unwrapped at the beginning of the sermon. Um, like I said, I, I never did it again. Or did I say that? I'm going, I'm going to tell you right now. I never did that again. Um, it, was, it, it pretty much ruined the experience for me. And as a kid, I liked having the toy. But, but now, as an adult, and, and ever since then, I just embrace the waiting. I enjoy the waiting. And sometimes my wife even tries to talk me into opening presents early with our kids. I say, no, we have to wait. Christmas is coming. And so let me challenge you to embrace God's waiting that he has for us. Let us embrace his process of healing and restoration that he's, he has for us, not something that we devise and try to force and try to make happen. So this Christmas season, while you're waiting, look for the quick fixes you are relying on. Ask God, show me what am I doing what am I doing to rely on my own strength and my own ability and my own brains to change me, to change the people around me? Instead of just looking to you, instead of just focusing on you, Lord.
the place where I am finding a lot of that right now is in Regen. And this is not just another place where I can plug something else we do as a church. I'm just telling you what, what it is. I'm telling you where I'm finding it. I'm finding a lot of that in Regen. I'm finding a lot of, of these quick fixes that I thought were normal or, or whatever. I'm using to manipulate the people around me that I'm using to try to change myself that isn't what God has for me. So just wanted to give you a place to start. Maybe that's it. So, again, this Christmas, while you're waiting, ask God to show you what are your quick fixes that you're relying on instead of him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this this passage that we can study. Thank you that we can look at this 2,700-year-old prophecy and we can know that you came and it was a for sure thing. Just like you promised you will come and you will finish the work that you've started in us and you will restore the world around us. Please, open our minds, open our eyes, open our hearts to see what are we doing in our own strength that isn't your plan, that isn't your process of waiting. God, we love you. We thank you for your son. Amen. We are so thankful as Tyson has reminded us that God